Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. All right, we are in 1 Kings chapter 2. It's on page 440 of your Bibles, or close to it, somewhere in that territory. Uh, It reads, Now the days of David drew near that he should die, and he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judges, his testimonies, as it's written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may fulfill his word which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons take heed to their way, to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, he said, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. This is part of Solomon's startup narrative. Like as a king, we're going to get 10 chapters on Solomon plus 11, which isn't really a good chapter for him. Um, David's setting this up. Last chapter we saw that he's kind of on his deathbed. These verses are presented as like these are the last words of David to Solomon. So Solomon's seated on the throne. David bowed to him and gave him that authority, uh, bloodless transfer of power. Uh, And now he's kind of given this last advice. Really, it sounds a little, at first read, this chapter sounds a little like a bitter old man saying, you got to knock off a few people that I didn't in my life, or there's undone things left, and I'm just going to hand those off to my son. I think there's a little bit of strategy here, and we'll unpack it a little bit. But David's giving this advice to Solomon so that his kingdom gets established firmly. And we've seen Solomon in chapter 1 follow good advice and even take it a step further. We saw him at the end of chapter 1 being fairly calculating with how he administered justice with people that were doing him wrong by challenging his throne. But now we're dealing with people that haven't really wronged Solomon yet, but he's still going to deal with those people, um, keeping the vows of his father. So verse 2, it says, I go the way of all the earth. Uh, That's another way of saying that David is, first of all, human, and second, he's not the Messiah. The Messiah is supposed to live forever. So as good as David was, he's not God. And so we'll see that throughout the Bible. It'll note when a good person dies because that's an indicator that they were a good and a righteous person, but they weren't, a, they weren't the Messiah. It says the advice he gives Solomon is to be strong. Uh, he knows that Solomon's maybe younger than especially his brothers. Maybe he's patient, uh, but he's got some great responsibilities in front of him. Young people, when handed great responsibilities, that's a tough thing. Um, Because you're suddenly in a situation where people expect things of you that maybe you don't know how to do, or you've never done them before. And you're thrown in there, and there's that idea that you're not going to get it right, you're not going to be perfect with it, but the advice David says is just be strong. So what does it mean to be strong as a godly person, and what does that look like? Um, Strong here means to grow strong, or the indication there isn't that he needs to just have physical strength, but that he should grow strong as a king. 
And to do that, he's got to do a few things. So David knows that kingship has its trials. David's kingship's been challenged before. So I think his hope is like to make it so Solomon doesn't have to deal with that stuff. And then you get to, I think, a great line. Prove yourself. The Hebrew word there is haya. It means to become something or exist as something or to be something. So prove yourself is to grow up into this being. Um, and that being is a man, a manliness. So we live in a society that kind of takes shots at manliness all the time that manliness in and of itself is almost an evil thing, uh, or hyper-masculinity is one of the popular words that gets used out there. The Bible, like most topics we've run into, doesn't shy away from the idea that there is something called manliness, and it's something that David, a godly man, encourages his godly son to be. So the simplistic version of this is that manliness is about being strong. But I think as we read the rest of the chapter, it has a lot more to do with that. So... I think this is important for both the guys in the room to understand what manliness is, but also, ladies, it's important for you to understand what manliness looks like so you can recognize when it's not there, too. But manliness has to do with some of these aspects. And we, so we get to spend a night on that at some degree, and there's other topics coming. Manliness to David is to keep the charge of the Lord. So God's given Solomon some responsibilities. Manliness is to keep the responsibilities you've been given. So I think this is really interesting. There's a, 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 a rising star speaker right now, which I'm not going to vouch for because I don't know where his spirituality is at, but Jordan Peterson talks a lot about manliness, and he's really hit it big on this topic of what does it mean to be manly or what is masculinity in a healthy sense, not a toxic masculinity, but a healthy masculinity. And I think so as he's talking about that, one of the things he suggests is that if you feel as a young man that you're, that you're weak, that you're not taking charge of things, then take one thing in your life that you can take charge of. And keeping the charge of the Lord is one of those things. It's a very similar advice. So if the charge of the Lord is you have your own bed to sleep on, make your bed in the morning and take care of it. Wash your sheets on a regular basis. There's nothing worse for a young lady than to go over to a guy's house and the sheets haven't been washed for two years. That's disgusting, right? So that idea of keep the charge of the Lord can be reduced down to the smallest space. You own a car, take care of the charge that's been given. Take care of your car. If it makes clunky sounds, don't keep driving it. Get it into the garage and take care of it. So for David, part of the manliness is that you simply take care of the business in your own life. And you're not reliant on other people to do that. So you take those responsibilities you've been given. This grows as you become more manly. Solomon just got handed a kingdom. So the more responsibility you have, the more charge you have from the Lord. A charge is something that's given to a soldier. It's you have responsibility of this guard post. Don't drop your guard. Keep it up. So for Solomon, he's given the responsibility of being the king of Israel. So to keep it, the word there in the Hebrew is samar. It's a word used in the military. It means to guard or observe or give heed to something or pay diligent attention to the thing you've been told to focus on. So if your responsibility is a classroom, if your responsibility is to deliver things, if your responsibility is to um, bring food to families and do meals for wheels or take care of solar panels, that's your charge that the world has given you. It's not necessarily the charge the Lord's given you other than that the Lord has blessed you with a job. So take good care of that job God's given you. Or one principle on that is 
to keep a charge. The word charge in there is mismareth, a guard post or a sentry duty. These are military terms that are being used here. And David was a military guy, right? So when you do that, a way to look at that is if you've been given this job by the Lord, you've been given these sets of responsibilities, do those responsibilities and then add like 10%. How can you do more than what your boss asks you to do? And when you do that kind of work, opportunities tend to follow, but you don't do it for the opportunities. You do it because God's blessed you with responsibilities. So do them and then try to do even more. It's kind of like a, a back-end form of tithing. Like, this is what my boss pays me for. This is what I'm going to do just to be a blessing to my boss. And then that becomes ministry. You're not getting paid for it. So keep the charge of the Lord. Second thing on manliness is to walk in his ways. So you see this, and this is, you know, the, the simple version of how to walk in his ways is Deuteronomy 6.5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Is God the center of your life or not? And biblical manliness is a guy who keeps the, what he's been, what's been put in front of him, but somebody who tries to walk in the ways of the Lord. And again, I'll, I'll put it real blunt. We got some young guys in the room. If you're not following the Lord, why would a young lady want to follow you into marriage? Why? So following the Lord becomes part of this image of manliness. So walk in his ways, number three, keep his statutes. Actually, you could do like three, four, five, six, seven, because judgments, testimonies, it keeps going. Statutes are customs or limits uh, that are in there. The, the term gets used 87 times in the Old Testament. God has declared a set of statutes that are very clear as to how to live. So Solomon has a big house, and the culture is to keep your house. The law gets kept nationally under Saul, Solomon, and in your house, you have to ask then, are you keeping the law and do you follow it and do you expect the people around you to follow it? Do you have a three-year-old pouring Gatorade on your couch? If that's not okay and it's your household, it's okay to tell the three-year-old, please don't dump your Gatorade on the couch because you're destroying other people's property. And in the law, you don't do that. You don't destroy other people's stuff. God said so. So as you're keeping the statutes, it has to do with something like that. And then you get to his judgments. The judgments, so when the law is written as statutes, the judgments are all the decisions that these characters make through the histories that are very particular situations where they have to apply the law. Then you make a judgment call. The world likes to call Christians judgmental or judgy. We're not judgy if we're obeying the law. That's us trying to keep our own path, right? But when we apply the law to situations that aren't clearly outlined in the Bible, that's judgment. And kings and civic leaders are told to use those as models for how to bring judgment in a situation. So if you're a judge in a courtroom, your job is actually to bring judgment. If you're not a judge in a courtroom, then that judgment can be judgmental. You're, you're applying your role as the judge over that person's life. But if you're simply reminding people that living in adultery is wrong, that's not judgmental. That's reflecting God's word to other people because it's clearly been outlined in the scriptures. In other words, that's God's judgment on that situation, not ours. I'm not judging it. It's what the Bible says. And so it's a very distinct thing. And then it says his testimonies. The testimonies would be considered by the Hebrews as the Psalms, the prophetic books, and books like Song of Solomon and Job. Those are the, the testimonies. They're the stories that people give where the Holy Spirit's inspired them to say or write something down. Statutes, judgments, testimonies. And then it says, as it is written. Basically, this is a good verse for establishing the priority of the word of God in our lives. 
You do what the Bible says. That's what manliness looks like. Frankly, that's also what womanliness looks like, right? So you can read Proverbs 32 if you want to see the woman version of that. Do what God's word says. And summary is, read this book and do what it says, and that ensures that God is with you in your life. Really simple advice from a dad. If you didn't have that great of a relationship with your dad, this is a great set of verses to memorize. Like, honestly, just stick with the Grant starts memorizing right now. I saw that, Grant. Verse 4, that the Lord may fulfill his word. Remember, God made a promise to David that if he and his kids kept the word, that God would promise that family. That's not necessarily a promise to me, but it is something that says there's a principle here that following God's word is going to put you in a position where God's much more likely to use you and much more likely to bless you. Because that's a, it's a good standard to go by. That you might prosper in all that you do. Again, that's specific to David's family because David's family is going to sit on the throne. So take care not to misuse those verses. God isn't promising all prosperity to Solomon, but it is just this idea of concerning me, which is in verse 4, specific to Solomon. And we do have promises also. I want to take a second because I think this is important for us to know what promises God made to us. So as David's saying, hey, Solomon, God made us this specific set of promises, we also have promises. In fact, through Jesus, we have way more promises than Solomon even did when it comes to this. If we follow the Lord, uh, we actually have this. Our king, Jesus, says, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you don't have to walk in darkness because you have a light that leads your life. If we're walking with Jesus, like a lot of those decisions, God's going to help us make those. Here's another one. Teach the new disciples to obey all the commands that I've given you and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20. In other words, God is always with you. That's crazy. God of the universe, if you're walking in his ways, if you're following the commandments of the word, he's with you in everything you do all the time. What a promise. That's even better than the two or three gathered in my name thing. That's like a guarantee that God's always with you all the time. I am leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give you is a gift that the world can't give. One of the things we've been promised is if we're following the world, life just gets easier. Like there is a calm and a peace no matter what's going on that the world can't understand and it can't give. And it can't take it away as the song says. So don't be troubled or afraid. Remember what I told you. I'm going away, but I'll come back to you again. There's another promise. God says he's coming back. John chapter 14. So we have a lot of promises. All right, here's another one. Jesus told her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. John 11:25. We're promised if we do what God says and follow after Jesus, that we have eternal life coming before us. That's more than Solomon got for a promise, though I think Solomon will be with us in eternal life. So we can take note that the closer we stick to God's word, the less we need to worry about everything else in life. And that's kind of what David's saying to Solomon right now. If you stick with the word, Solomon, your kingship's going to be easy. God will just take care of it. He'll fight your battles for you. And he wrote it in his Psalms. Light, spirit, peace, resurrection, those are the big ones, and there are more. That Honestly, we could spend all night looking at the promises of God to us as a generation. The promises are amazing. So Solomon doesn't have to worry about the, the foreign powers that are advers adversarial to Israel. He doesn't have to worry about them at all. Not only has David kicked the crud out of them for 40 years, 
but Solomon's going to have to realize that they're not really going to be able to strike back within a generation. So God's already kind of set him up pretty well, and David's saying he's going to promise you. This reminded me of Matthew 6.33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. It's a pretty solid promise. It's hard, though, to seek the kingdom of God first. It seems like there's so many other things to worry about. But that's the one. That's the path to real strength. That's the kind of strength that David's talking about when he says to Solomon, be strong and be a man. Doesn't mean go to the gym. It means that you follow after the Lord with your whole heart, mind, and soul. And if you do it, life's going to be a little bit easier for you. Though you could go to the gym if you want to. Here's the specifics on this. David knew the politics. He knew the past. He knew the characters that were out there. So Solomon would be wise to listen up on these next verses. Here it is, verse 5. Moreover, you know also what Joab the son of Zeruiah did to me. All those times we've been reading about Joab and we're like, what is David thinking? Now we get to know. And what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner the son of Ner, 2 Samuel 3.27, and Amasa the son of Jether, 2 Samuel 20.9-10, whom he killed and he shed the blood of war in peacetime. David had made peace with his enemies and put these people over the army trying to like supplant Joab. And then Joab kills them and keeps his position as head of the army. And he put the blood of war on his belt that was around his waist and on his sandals that were on his feet. He did this. Therefore, do according to your wisdom and don't let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. This is where it sounds like a bitter old man, right? Before you go, don't let Joab die a natural death. Take him out. So it sounds really harsh. Joab was loyal to David, but not obedient to David. I think that's interesting. I think we see images of that today too. There are people that are loyal, but they don't know how to follow. And Joab did this multiple times. He, he's what we would call a loose cannon. That's a term on a pirate ship when you don't have a cannon tied down and the waves start going. Now you've got a 40-pound piece of metal flying around your deck. The cannon's on your side, but it's going to do more damage to you than to the enemy. Sometimes that happens in the church. Loose cannons are hard to manage. And they can do damage, too. So David barely had controlled Joab. He barely kept him in track. How well is Solomon going to do with Joab running around? And David understands the politics of this situation, that Joab's not going to regard Solomon as his king. And there's going to be problems with this guy. And he's gray-haired. He's lived a long life. So why didn't David kill him himself? And I think that's one of the great mysteries. Like, it's on my very long list of questions when I get to heaven. David, why didn't you just kill Joab the first time he did this stuff? He was a murderer. He had blood on his hands. Um, maybe it's that David and him made a vow back in the caves when they were in their 20s. And that's the only thing I can think of, that Joab and David just said, we're with it till the end. And we're going to be each other's, we're going to have each other's back forever. And everything Joab did, you could argue, was to protect David. Um, so it might be that there's a vow there. We don't know. At, there, at the very least, there's brotherhood. These guys have lived their lives together, and David's just not going to be the one to do anything. He's not going to do that. However, telling your son to take him out, you know. The other thing with Joab is David, David had to fight the enemies of Israel. Isn't Joab the kind of guy you want in your corner when you're going to get in a scrap? Like, if you're in a bar fight, don't you want Joab fighting with you? And I wonder if David just thought of that. Like, as long as it takes to subdue the enemies of Israel, I want that guy next to me. 
And I wonder if David just keeps him around and at this point in his life he can see that the enemies of Israel have been subdued. And Solomon's going to largely have a period of peace here. And what do you do with a warrior in the middle of a period of peace? So Joab supported Adonijah against uh, Solomon. And David sees that Joab has already taken a side that Solomon's not going to be able to handle him. So it could be that exactly what happened in chapter 1 is what's causing David to say this. All that said, that's a lot of maybes, and we don't do a ton, I don't do a ton of maybes. You can read it how you want. We can talk about it afterwards. Verse 7, but show kindness to the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite. Let them be among those who eat at your table, for they also came to me when I had fled Absalom your brother. They give the reference there in verse 7. To eat at your table means to be cared for or supported. And we've seen a lot of this in the Old Testament. These kind of heads of household in early Israel would have people that were non-relatives living in their house. And the idea was, we're adopting you, you eat at our table, you're part of our family. So David's saying, kill Joab, but on an equal level, the justice that he's asking for with Joab, Barzillai's justice is the exact opposite outcome, because Barzillai was kind, David says, be kind to Barzillai. If you give mercy even to the least of these, you give mercy to me. If you hurt the least of these, you're hurting me. So David the father is telling Solomon the son to carry out justice, and it goes two directions. Verse 5 and 6 is to administer justice that's negative, and verses 7 is to administer justice that's positive. I wonder if what we're going through here is kind of a list of like how people will be treated in the judgment. Some, like Joab, will think they're on the right side of things, and they're going to be judged for the murder that's on their hands that they did in the name of the king. And then you get people like Barzillai that just feed people and hook them up and are merciful, and God's going to be merciful to those people and administer justice that way. If that's the case, we should all be Barzillais, not Joabs. Verse 8, And see you have with you Shimei, the son of Gerai. This character just keeps coming up. A Benjamite from Baruam who cursed me with a malicious curse in the day I went to Mahanaim. But he came down to me at the Jordan, and I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, don't hold him guiltless, for you're a wise man and know that you, what you ought to do to him. But bring his gray hair down to the grave with blood. Again, this is David just like, I swore that I wouldn't touch this guy, but Solomon, you're not under that oath. Take him out. Politically, Shimei was willing to curse David to his face when he was, looked like he was on the outs. What's he willing to do to Solomon? And Shimei represents kind of the household of Saul or those people that were stridently against David because he was replacing Saul. So again, David's seeing this. He remembers it. He keeps a record of it. Justice can be put off, but it, does, it will come due at some point. So even if there's a mercy that goes to people that aren't asking for mercy, Shimei has this, but he seems to just flop either way. He's whichever way the wind is blowing, Shimei's on that side. And David knows that as the winds blow in Solomon's kingship, Shimei's not the guy to have around. We also note that Shimei's probably a very influential house leader of the Benjaminites um, because he gets brought up this much. In other words, he's saying, maybe you need to worry about the Benjaminites. As David and Solomon are of the tribe of Judah, the Benjaminites would be the chief rival to that tribe for the kingship because they have a claim through Saul. So take this guy out. Don't let him go down to his grave. 
So David just handed off three unfinished items to Solomon. Take care of these three things. And he's passing on his leadership. These are the things you need to deal with, Solomon. I knew that Shammai and Joab or, uh, um, were under control in my kingship, but I'm not sure what's going to happen to you with those two. Take them out. So David rested with his fathers in verse 10 and was buried in the city of David. I don't know why, but I think that's so sad because we've been hanging out with David now for, what, two months, two and a half months, three months? It's kind of sad to see a great man like David rest with his fathers. The phrase rested with his fathers gets used throughout the Old Testament for godly people. It doesn't get used for the sinful king, right? But to rest with your fathers is a way to say that they died, but actually resting isn't death. It implies resurrection is coming, that he's just going to go to sleep for a while. He's resting. I just like the phrase. Buried in the city of David, the term city of David is a nickname for Jerusalem. The tune was known, or at least there was a site that in the first century, the disciples make reference of the tomb of David. And there is a site today that they believe is the tomb of David. The one that we have today, historians kind of disagree with. They think there's some problems with it. And the Catholics named a lot of sites across this area of the world. So archaeologists are finding alternative sites to a lot of these, but they haven't really found one for the tomb of David yet. In other words, there's going to be some cool archaeological discoveries, and we're getting so close. There was one yesterday in Galilee. They're digging up um, Bethsaida, which is where they think that Peter and the fishermen were from. And they dug up a place that was first century frescoes, and in the, in the fresco on the floor, it basically says to pray for Peter, who's the head of the disciples. In this fresco on the floor in Bethsaida, they haven't been able to dig up Bethsaida because it was territory that was disputed. So they're digging this up right now. That puts a fresco on the floor within 100 years of Peter's actual life. Awesome. And it also makes reference to like the government leaders and things like that too. So it's we're going to keep digging up stuff like this. And so I, I do believe they're going to find the tomb of David and they're going to have some pretty cool evidence. You just got to keep track of what they're digging up right now because they're putting license on a lot of these archaeological digs during our lifetime, all of which are giving evidence and validity to what we read in the scriptures. It's, it's, I think it's really exciting, but I'm a geek. Acts 2.29, the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and his sepulcher is with us till this day. Again, first century, they knew right where this guy was buried. The location then is right there for the disciples. Verse 12, God's promise to David is kept. We should know that. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. Back in 2 Samuel 7, it says when David's days are fulfilled, that he shall sleep with thy fathers and will set up a seed after him, which shall proceed out of David's loins and will establish his kingdom. So God promised that David's son would sit on the throne and his kingdom of Israel would be established. You could also say that's a prophecy for Jesus, but it's fulfilled in the short term with Solomon. So Solomon establishes his kingdom. We get next coming up in Kings is a series of stories that shows Solomon's leadership style and how he established authority as a young king over this nation, a turbulent new nation. So last week, Adonijah tried to take the throne he begged forgiveness when David gave it to Solomon. And then we get to verse 13. We're back to the story with Adonijah. So he's gotten that advice from his dad. And now verse 13, Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. So she said, Do you come peacefully? 
And he said, peacefully. Moreover, he said, I have something to say to you. And she said, say it. <laughs> like, this doesn't sound like a relationship of love, right? When somebody shows up at your house and you're like, are you here to kill me? Or are you here to, is this peaceful or not peaceful? And he says, peaceful. Okay, then say what you got to say. It's very blunt, very abrupt. Um, clearly, Beth, uh, Bathsheba didn't have a great relationship with this side of the family. Um, when we last saw Adonijah, remember what David said to him? He said, you need to go stay in your house. If he's walking into the court and he's talking to the mother of the king, or the, the mother of the king, is that staying in his house? And the answer is, heck no. He shouldn't have nothing to do with the court right now. He should just stay at home and raise his family because that's the charge God gave to him and the charge that David gave to him, to carry your home. And some people do have that charge, right? So he, he, they get told to do this. He doesn't. So he doesn't use the protocol and respect that we've seen all the way through chapter one. Remember how people would approach people and they would bow and there'd be all this protocol? Adonijah doesn't use any of the protocol. There's a strong indication here that he's coming fairly arrogantly to, to Bathsheba. The other thing is, why is he going to the queen mother instead of going straight to David? So he's doing this back channel thing instead of going right to the person. He's talking about that person and asking for things. And if I go and ask David, David's going to say no. So maybe if I go through Solomon, or if I ask Solomon, if I just go through Solomon's mom, maybe that'll come across better. Have you ever seen people do this? They get someone else to take their issue to that person. And really, the Bible has multiple spots throughout the Bible. As believers, we're not supposed to do that. If we have something we need to talk to somebody about, we're supposed to be strong and have the courage to go talk to that person and to do it directly and straightforward, not to do all this guile and back around stuff. So then he says, verse 15, after Adonijah makes his weasel move, then he said, you know that the kingdom was mine. Oh, wait, was it? Was it his kingdom ever? All right, I'm sorry. I'll just read it. Verse 15, then he said, you know that the kingdom was mine and all Israel had set their expectations on me that I should reign. However, the kingdom has been turned over and has become my brother's for it was his from the Lord. Clearly we were going our way and the Lord interrupted our plans and the Lord then gave this kingdom to Solomon, but it was mine. So he's presuming a lot here and it kind of sounds like Bathsheba's either taken in by this or I think she's shrewder. So, so I've seen commentators that are like, Bathsheba, this is really horrible. I've seen commentators that say that Bathsheba was taken in by this because she was simple. Because she was just an innocent kind of mom figure and she just didn't see the intrigue here. I don't think she's that dumb. I just don't because what we saw with her and Nathan, like she's a player. So as a player, when somebody does that back around thing, what's the best thing to do with intrigue? Put a big spotlight on it and bring it right to that person. And that's exactly what she does. She's just going to take that message, bring it right to Solomon. I'm going to keep saying David instead of Solomon like for the next two weeks, aren't I? So I mean Solomon from here on out because David's at this point dead. So she's going to take that and go right in. So verse 16, here's the request. I ask one petition of you and do not deny me. And she said to him, say it. Put it in words, buddy. 17, then he said, please speak to King Solomon, for he will not refuse you, that he may give me Abishag the Shunammite. She is really dynamite. It's catchy, isn't it? All right. 
So Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak for you to the king. I just, to me, that seems like the best thing you can do when something like that happens. Somebody says, hey, I want you to go talk to this person for me. You do it. But then you say, this person told me to come talk to you and say this, right? Put, a, put it right out in the light so that whoever you're going to knows that that person tried to do an end around. Well, that's betraying somebody. Adonijah's already betraying, right? He's already playing games. Don't be joining in on those games. Verse 19, Bathsheba therefore went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah. And the king rose up to meet her and bowed down to her. That's interesting. Solomon's bowing down to his mom, even as king. That's a lot of honor and respect. I want to just stop there for a sec. One, don't underestimate that line. That's a ton of honor for a king in the ancient world to bow down. That's where you get the term queen mother, that she actually has some leadership and authority in this kingdom. She's a generation older than Solomon. She has wisdom. Solomon, in his wisdom, recognizes what she adds. But he's the king. Why is he bowing to her? So I don't think you can, like, you need to recognize that this is kind of unique. But I don't think you overplay this either. I've seen kind of, I've, I've seen a take on this where it says she's really running the kingdom and she's really in charge. I think this is just a son honoring his mother. And I think to read more than that into this is to kind of, push the text in a way that I don't think the text is trying to go. Because she doesn't ultimately make any decisions here. But they have a relationship where he loves and respects his mother, but he's still the king of this country and has to do his job. And I think that's kind of cool. It's like, don't dismiss that, um, but also don't build it out into more than it is. So we'll go back. He bowed down to her and sat down on his throne and had a throne set for the king's mother. So she sat at his right hand. Every time we've seen the mention of right hand, that's the position in the kingdom that will go out and do things for people. On a Persian chessboard, the queen can move all over the board. She's got a lot of freedom on that board where the king kind of has to stay home, right? So but he's using Bathsheba in very influential ways. She's part of this administration. Clearly, they didn't have the gender issues we do today. There's gender differences, but there's not necessarily this thing where you know, we've seen a lot of this in the history, especially in the church, where women get put in their place, so to speak. But the place for this woman is at the right hand of the king. And she's clearly in leadership, and she's clearly in that spot. So this gets interesting as you go through the whole Bible. There's this kind of narrative, which has become a hot-button issue for Christians today. What are the role of males and females in the church? Clearly in the nation of Israel under Solomon's reign, one of those roles was to support the king and to back it up. And honestly, I don't know a lot of godly men that I'm impressed with that don't have very strong women as their spouse or supporting them in the ministry. It's very common. So Bathsheba, therefore, goes up. She brings this issue of Adonijah there. She sits down at his right hand. And then she says, verse 20, I desire one small petition of you. Don't refuse me. And the king said to her, Ask it, my mother, for I will not refuse you. So she said, let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as a wife. The way she's phrasing this is, is she is keeping her promise to Adonijah. She's advocating for Adonijah. So this is where people read it and think, well, she was just taken in by his guile. I think she's just keeping her promise and laying it right out there. Maybe seeing how her, she raised Solomon. I think a mom knows a lot about how their son's going to react to a situation. I think she knows darn well what kind of guy her son is and how he's going to react. So she lays it on the table, 
And like a wise mother raising a wise son, she gives him an honest test by not showing her bias right off the bat. So she makes the petition. Solomon picks up on, I think this is interesting. So far in the Bible, every leader we've seen that makes a vow to somebody and it goes the wrong way, they feel like they need to keep the vow. Right? Because to break a vow is bad under God's law. Notice what Solomon does here as he responds. Because he said, I will not refuse you. So part of what he does in this vow to get out of it, because he just said he won't refuse her, she makes the request. So normally, what we've seen in the Bible is then the king feels locked into making an even worse decision, right? But Solomon doesn't do that because he can parse it out. There's wisdom here. This isn't Bathsheba's request. This is Adonijah's request. And he, said, and, and he has no vow to keep Adonijah's request. So his mom's not making her own request. So King Solomon answered and said to his mother, verse 22, Now why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? So he parses that out. Why are you asking for somebody else? Why isn't Adonijah asking me? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he's my older brother, for him and for Abiathar the priest, for Joab the son of Zeruiah. Why don't you just give this guy the whole kingdom, mom? I think she knew darn well how he was going to respond. He's a, he's a little brother, and he's had to fight for his position his whole life, and now she's coming in saying, why didn't you give him Abishag the Shunammite? And he's like, well, why don't I just give him the whole kingdom? Like, there's some sarcasm here. It's very human writing. I just love that. She has his respect, and he's the king in this situation, and he truthfully sizes up the situation instantly. I don't care how young Solomon is. This is really wise. This is veteran leadership kind of stuff. So some believe it took her some time here to get this across. Um, this Abishag the Shunammite is becoming a character at this point. She, it took her a long time to find Ab. Remember they searched the kingdom for Abishag the Shunammite because she was really dynamite. And it took them a long time, and some people believe it took them a long time to find her because they're trying to bring a young woman of that age into the household that Solomon could kind of watch. They made a huge point that she never had sex with David. So she was brought into the household like a concubine, but it wasn't a sexual thing. That means that as Solomon takes over the household, he just took her as one of his wives, and that becomes his inheritance. But only she's a wife that's still a virgin. So some people believe Adabashag the Shunammite is the woman that Solomon writes the Song of Solomon about. Which if you read the Song of Solomon and take it literally, she's really ugly. But in 1 Kings it says she's really beautiful. So that means that Song of Solomon is metaphorical and poetic and we need to read it that way. So arguably, this is the wife or the first wife that Solomon falls in love with. Because he's watching her take care of his dad. She's the, the household nurse. And he's like, wow, she's really dynamite. So she's also a memory of David, and she's part of David's household. So for Adonijah to ask for one of David's wives in this part of the world, in this period of time, that's asking for a piece of the kingdom and a claim to the throne. Make no doubt about it. If he takes her as a wife, then it shows the rest of the nation that he is the inheritor of that throne. So it's, that's why Solomon's not just overreacting here. He's realizing what this request really is. It's a sneaky way to make another claim to the throne in, in two, three years. He's going to build up 
his, his supporters, and he's going to make a go of it. So Adonijah just asked for the bride of the king because he still wants the kingdom. This is a problem because Solomon gave this guy mercy, and now he's back being a manipulator in the court. Can you see where Solomon's going with this? So that sarcasm is giving way to what's happening. Adonijah had a choice. He could obey and stay at home like he was told, or he can continue to presume that he's king. Solomon's going to deal with it. Verse 23, then King Solomon swore by the Lord. Now he's making an oath of his own, saying, may God do to me and more also if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. Solomon's not punishing Adonijah. Adonijah spoke a word against his own life. He made this decision. I think this is super important because it's a typology of everything God does with all of humanity. We don't, God doesn't pick people to go to heaven and hell. We make a decision that God honors. We've been told the rules. We've been told the covenant of Jesus. We either keep it or we don't. We make our own decision. We speak our own words against our own life. And it says that in the end, every word we've ever spoken, every idle word we've spoken will be held account for at the end of our days. That's a big order. I hope I have a good lawyer in the name of Jesus and he can come in and protect me because frankly, I'm guilty. Verse 24, now therefore as the Lord lives, by the way, the Lord does live, so this is a vow that will happen, who has confirmed me and set me on the throne of David my father and who has established a household for me as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. I like Solomon's humility here. He didn't put himself on the throne. And if you go back to Kings 1, Solomon didn't put himself on the throne. It got worked out that way, like the Lord did it through other people. But Solomon didn't fight for the throne. He was given the throne. And I think that's just awesome. And I, I think when we're in our callings and ministries, we don't necessarily put ourselves there. Other people put us in those ministries. Verse 25, so King Solomon sent by the hand of Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and struck him down and he died. Boom, it's over. This is what you call swift justice. Right? Swift and speedy trial. He spoke against himself, it's over. And we get a sense of Solomon's leadership. He deals with things and he deals with things quickly. Very different than his dad, actually, right? His dad would have these situations and not deal with them, and it got him into trouble. Solomon, situation comes up, it's over just like that. Done. Verse 26, we'll just move on too, because the text does. And to Abiathar the priest, the king said, go to Anathoth, to your own fields, for you're deserving of death. Okay, remember Abiathar and Joab were both part of the conspiracy to put Adonijah on the throne. So Adonijah breaks the covenant, and not only does Solomon deal with Adonijah, now he deals with all of his supporters. So these are people, we just saw that he dealt with people because his dad said, here's some un unkept business you need to deal with. Now Solomon's taking care of his own business, and he's going to do it quite quickly here. So Abiathar is deserving of death because he helped Adonijah. Because you carried the ark of the Lord before my father, he gave him some mercy. And because you were afflicted every time my father was afflicted. So Solomon removed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, that he might fulfill the word of the Lord, which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. Because you were a good guy and you supported my dad all the way through, I'm just going to send you to retirement. So he makes a different decision for each person. I think this is great. It's called justice. Well applied by a good judge. Solomon's making unique decisions based on the behavior and life of each person. So this is with Abiathar. 
you need to just leave the court and get out of here. It's really the same deal he gave to Adonijah that Adonijah messed up on. So go to your own fields. A priest shouldn't have fields. It's interesting how that's been corrupted over 500 years. Should a priest own fields? If you go back to Leviticus, they shouldn't. So that somehow has become part of the tradition. By the time you get to Jesus, the Pharisees were the richest people of the population. The religious elite became the richest and most wealthy in Israel, even with Roman rule. So it's interesting how over time, people cling to themselves money and wealth and greed, and it sucks. But it's already happening here. He's got his own fields. Um, that it might be fulfilled the word of the Lord, which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. If you go back on that one, back in Exodus 29, Aaron was put in the high priest position. Aaron's family then becomes high priests that serve in the temple. There's tons of Levites that do other stuff, but Aaron's family is serving as the temple stewards. So if you go down that line, that line of perpetual service, in 1 Samuel 2, Eli's sons were corrupt priests. They were stealing, and they were ripping people off. Eli doesn't deal with it. God removes them. And then you get to 1 Samuel 22. Saul kills everyone in Eli's family except for Abiathar, who is loyal to the kingdom. So he lets Abiathar survive. That means there's only one family left that had been removed from the priesthood. Abiathar's family is the only one. That doesn't mean Aaron doesn't have other lines in the family, but the Eli wing was promised to be cut off. Abiathar gets to live a long life because God promised it to him. But at this point, Abiathar too is removed from the high priest role. He'd been sharing it, and now he's done. So he's removed. That completes the promise of God from 1 Samuel 2. As we move forward in the histories, we're going to see that lots of promises get kept by God. It's kind of a theme in the Bible. When God makes a promise, it gets kept. And it might take a while, but it always gets kept. In fact, there's not one promise in the Bible that God doesn't keep. That means that the promises that are left, that he promises to our generation and the next, the forever promises, we can have trust and faith that they too will be kept perfectly. So it's one of those kind of assurance things. Um, Abiathar was afflicted every time my father David was afflicted. Uh, he stuck with David through his whole kingship. And that's got to have some points. So Solomon's saying, I'm going to honor you because you honored that. And he removes him from the thing. Then came Joab. Now we get to deal with Joab. Verse 28. Then, came, then news came to Joab. Joab's realizing that Adonijah just got killed and Abiathar just got exiled. What's Joab going to do? He's going to run. <laughs> For Joab had defected to Adonijah, though he had not defected to Absalom. So Joab fled to the tabernacle of the Lord, and he took hold of the horns of the altar, and King Solomon was told, Joab has fled to the tabernacle. There he is by the altar. Then Solomon sent Benaniah, son of Jehoiada, saying, go and strike him down. Like, Joab doesn't get a second chance. Go take him out. Verse 30, so Benaniah went to the tabernacle of the Lord and said to him, thus says the king, come out. And he said, no, but I will die here. Benaniah brought word back to the king, saying, Thus Joab had, had, and thus he answered me. Thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. In other words, Benaniah doesn't want to kill somebody who's holding on to the altar in the tabernacle. right? So even at this point in history, holy places get kind of a, we don't hurt people in holy places, and there's a mythos there. Like, if you go run into a, a cathedral, that's sanctuary. The mob can't get you there. right? So there's this thing going on there, and Benaniah's like, I don't want to kill him. He ran to the tabernacle. Verse 31, then the king said to him, do as he said and strike him down and bury him. 
that you may take away from me and from my house, from the house of my father, the innocent blood which Joab sent. He's taking his dad's advice. But he didn't move on his dad's advice until Adonijah crossed the line. So if they would have just kept their place, they'd have been fine. But they crossed the line that the king said not to cross. So the Lord will return his blood on his head because he struck down two men more righteous and better than he. Joab killed a lot of people, but the two innocent people are the ones he's held account for. These two you shouldn't have killed. And killed them with the sword. Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, the commander of the army of Judah, though my father David did not know it. Their blood shall therefore return upon the head of Joab and upon the head of his descendants forever. But upon David and his descendants, upon his house and his throne, there shall be peace forever from the Lord. This is just an interesting way to handle this. Joab supported Ananijah. He goes to the altar. He's grabbing, he's hoping for the same treatment that we, he got given to Adonijah and Abiathar. Adonijah and Abiathar were both offered a sanctuary. You go back to your home and take care of your house and you're fine. So by running to this place of peace, really it's this image of running to refuge. He thinks he's innocent, so he's waiting for judgment from the high priest. But the high priest just got ousted, so now we have a different, Zadok's the new high priest. We'll get to that. He's hoping for the same deal that they got. But he's not going to get that deal because he's got unaccounted for murders on his hands. If a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he might die, Exodus 21.14. It's interesting when you get these laws, the way they're worded, they perfectly account for the situations in the histories. It's like God knew this moment was coming. So you can run to the altar, but if you're actually guilty, there's no protection for you if you're breaking the law of the king. Right? And so that image of if you're going to break God's law, there's no refuge for that. You can't run from that situation. You can repent and hope for mercy, but there is a judgment that's coming. So Abner and Amasa, both are being held against him. David brought it up. Solomon waits. This whole thing happens. And now it's like, we're done. Why did he run to the altar? Because he knew that Solomon was after him. Why does he know that Solomon's after him? Because he actually was trying to get Solomon not to be king. So his heart kind of betrays him. Guilty people don't run. It's kind of the principle of this. But he does run. What's that? Yes. Innocent people. I'm so glad you guys have grace for me. Innocent people don't run. Guilty people run. He didn't find him at his home eating and hanging out with his family. He found him begging for mercy because Joab knows he's guilty. But he thinks he's being held accountable for the thing with Adonijah. And Solomon's saying, I'm going to hold you accountable for these past things you did that my dad never held you accountable for. I'm going to make this right so that my family, my house, is not held guilty for your sins. And if Solomon lets it go, then he's as guilty as the person who did it. So this shows us something about kind of this godly leadership. If you've got a friend that's living in sin and calling himself a believer, and you say nothing in love to that person, hey, what you're doing right now is kind of against God's law you're actually held accountable for some of that because God put you in their life, maybe even your roommates, and he, he put you in that situation to address that. That doesn't mean to be all judgy and nasty, but it does mean that you can't just let some things go that are clearly against the law of God. You have to bring it up and say, hey, I love you, but you're breaking the law right now. How do you, far do you think that's going to get you? 
Is it going to get you closer to Jesus or is it getting you on bad terms? So that idea that Solomon refuses to let it go because he sees that that person's under his authority or under his roof, so he has to deal with it. And he has to make that happen. So he does it because he wants peace forever, is the phrase. If I want peace in my house, then I have to address this kind of stuff. And I have to deal with it. So Benaniah, the son of Joai, verse 34, went up and struck and killed him. And he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. And the king put Benaiah and the son of Jehoiada in his place over the army and put Zadok the priest in the place of Abiathar. So previously those two people were sharing the positions and now they're not sharing. David's got his high priest and he's got his general of the armies and he's united that position again. So you can see how Solomon's building his kingdom with his people, right? So he's bumping the old cabinet and putting in a new one. Solomon's moving quickly. He provides justice in these situations. He handles people differently based on their behavior. And he takes past behavior into account, but he acts quickly and moves forward with justice. He doesn't let stuff hang out there forever. It just gets worse. So as a king, we're seeing that Solomon is merciful. We've seen him be just. We've seen him be fair. And so we're getting a sense of Solomon's reign and kingship. And then in verse 36, we're going to deal with Shimei. Then the king sent and called for Shimei, and he said to him, build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there. Do not go out from there anywhere, for it shall be that on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron, know for certain you shall surely die. Your blood then shall be on your own head. We get that same principle again. He's not going to make the decision to kill Shimei, but Shimei has that decision put back on him. And this is godly kingship. Jesus himself isn't going to doom you to hell. Like there's bad memes out there that really imply that kind of thing. Jesus says, you get to make the choice. You can choose to follow and follow God's laws and follow his covenant, or you can ignore it and do your own thing. But you get the choice. That blood of you is on your head, and you get to make that decision. Frankly, I would rather it's that way. I wouldn't want to get punished, but it wasn't, I didn't have any power in that decision. That seems really unfair. But if I've made all my own decisions and I can see where I've made those choices, then I can see that there's a fairness to my God and there's a justice to my God, that I deserve certain things because that's fair game. So I, it's just this principle of him putting things back on them, and I think it's neat. And Shimei said to the king, the saying is good. As my lord the king has said, so your servant will do. He makes a vow. So Shimei dwelt in Jerusalem many days. When this happens... There's a justice to it. Even Shimei sees it. And I honestly think when the throne of judgment comes, every single person that goes before God is going to at least understand this is fair and it's just. I deserve it. I don't deserve it. I'm going to be clinging to the altar, so to speak, saying I deserve all of it, and I'm going to start that way. <laughs> like I'm going to come before God with humility and say I deserve everything you got coming. I'm not going to fake or pretend any of it. And I also believe that Jesus died for my sins. And I'm asking for mercy because Jesus died for me. And I've followed Jesus my whole life. And I've given, since the day I made the vow, I kept the vow. I moved into Jesus' house and I stayed there. And I didn't leave it. Shimei's making the same deal. Go to your house and live there. The king's giving him a place to live. And Shimei says, that's good. He, he recognizes the mercy of it all. And he vows to do it. And he does do it. Now it happened at the end of three years he keeps the vow for three years. But then 
Two slaves of Shimei. Should Israelites hold slaves? No, they shouldn't have slaves. So his problem starts in his sin. He has two slaves. They ran away to Achish, the son of Maacah, king of Gath. They told Shimei, saying, look, your slaves are in Gath. That's Philistine territory. So Shimei arose, saddled his donkey, and went to Achish at Gath to seek his slaves. That's bold going into enemy territory to get your slaves. And Shimei went and brought his slaves from Gath. And Solomon was told that Shimei had gone down to Jerusalem to Gath and had come back. And the king sent and called for Shimei. And he said to him, did I not make you swear by the Lord and warn you, saying, know for certain that on the day you go out and travel anywhere, you shall surely die? And you said to me, I like how Solomon remembers what he said three years later. You ever have conversations like that with people? They've stuck in your head and it's been a while now. You remember it like it was yesterday. Shimei, so help me. You go to your house and you stay there because if you cross the Kidron, it's over. You've made the decision. And Solomon remembers that conversation because he was dead serious when he said it. Notice that Shimei did, never gets a chance to answer, right? You can have all the excuses in the world why you needed to go fetch your slaves, why you had to go into the world's territory, why you had to go after your sin and follow it into the world. You can say that till your heart, you're, you're blue in the face. God's not interested in those excuses. And he doesn't offer mercy in that situation. I, it's amazing to me when you catch people in a lie, how they react. Well, but I did this and I said this. You mean you made up your own morality after you made a vow? You said you were going to do one thing and then you did another thing. Why did you do that? And they just can't accept the fact that they made a mistake, that they're lying. And it's so sad because you think, mm, God's mercy is just waiting for you. If you would just say, oh, I really screwed up, I'm sorry. But in this case, the decision had been made. He'd already gotten mercy, and then he went back and disregarded it and didn't care about it. And the king never gives him a chance to respond. Know for certain that on the day you shall go out and travel anywhere, you shall surely die. You said to me, the word I have heard is good. Then why have you not kept the oath of the Lord and the commandment that I gave you? Why are you doing it? And there's no answer. The king moreover said to Shemai, you know, as your heart acknowledges all the wickedness that you did to my father, therefore the Lord will return your wickedness on your own head. In other words, all that wickedness was going to be forgiven, but because he chased after his sin with his life, his, that, that forgiveness is now being removed. But he, didn't, he removed it himself. It's not that the king or that God wasn't willing to give that salvation to this guy. It's that he chose to not take it and disregard what God asked him to do. This is a terrifying verse if you think about it. right? If there's any kind of imagery here or, or things we're supposed to learn, it's that when God offers us mercy, we say thank you. We don't make excuses for why we kept doing it our own way. I, if, at least for me, this is when you backslide. I take this really seriously, and I've backslidden before. And you run to the throne, and you ask for forgiveness in that situation, but you understand that the king is not obligated to give forgiveness. It's a gift. It's a precious gift that you don't disregard when you get. And the king said, moreover, to Shimei, you know as your heart acknowledges. Shimei knew he had done wrong. He understood the idea. 
all the wickedness that you did to my father, therefore the Lord will return your wickedness on your own head. If you disregard God and God's laws, that comes back to bite you. But the King Solomon shall be blessed and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. So the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and he struck him down and he died. Thus the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Solomon will, have, will not have vow breakers in his kingdom, especially in high positions or in leadership roles. The son Solomon then takes full authority of the father's throne. And then the, the judgment then is fair, merciful, swift, and even ruthless at some level. Like, this is pretty swift. Unlike Saul or David, Solomon fights no battles or wars, but he does take care of divisive people. And it makes it so he doesn't have to fight battles and wars. So he's, there won't be a civil war in Solomon's reign. The throne then gets locked in with these very few decisions and very just and fair decisions. And some of these decisions take three years to carry out. Solomon's got a long memory, but when he says something, he means it. That establishes a kingdom where under this son taking over the throne, when he says something, his word is going to be held to be true. Great image of Jesus. When the son takes the throne and Jesus says things, they will be followed through on. And Solomon sets, I don't think he's aware that he's doing this, but he's definitely setting up that idea. So when Jesus speaks in the New Testament, we listen to him because we trust that he's going to keep his word. And Jesus talks just as much about damnation as he does about heaven. Actually more if you tally it all up. If we want God's blessing, how long do we abide sin in our lives? Let's take this on a really personal level. If we are king of our own lives and queens of our own lives, how long do we put up with sin before we get rid of it? Right? How long do we put up with those things in our life that keep us from God when we could, get, we could eliminate them instantly? Holy Spirit, go take care of Joab. Right? And we can pray that in our own lives too. Lord, I got this sin in my life that's just going to plague me for decades. I need you to kill it. Maybe that means we need to expose it. Maybe that means we take those situations that lead us into sin and we put them in their own little house away from the kingdom. We exile those things. We get rid of them. So you look at how Solomon's dealing with each of these people and it's almost an image of how to deal with sin. Like in each of these situations, there's wisdom, there's thoughtfulness, he recognizes the character of the person, and then he deals with it accordingly. You know, private sins, maybe you deal with with a friend. Public sins, maybe you bring them up to the whole church, and you make some discerning choices around what's appropriate to bring up where, but put it in the light, like, like he does with Adonijah, right? He tries to be all sneaky and manipulative. It's a lot like sin that sneaks into our life in those private spaces. What do you do? Make those private spaces into public spaces. Expose them. And they can't survive out in the light. So here's a principle. <laughs> this is a tough principle from this chapter. God, too, will punish wicked people. He will. It's promised. And on the flip side of that coin, God will bless people that are seeking him. Not perfect people, but people that seek him and want to honor him as their king. Solomon has lots of people that screw up. But if you're loyal to Solomon... You're not, you don't have to worry about the judgment. The same thing's true of Jesus. Jesus will punish the wicked, but man, if you're trying to seek Jesus, it doesn't matter how many times you sin, there's nothing that will separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. Even big David-like sins, right? He dies as being welcomed into the kingdom of God because he treated God as his king. 
we serve a good and a just God. As we live our lives, are we ready to stand before the king? If we left here tonight and there was like a volcano in White Bear and we all died tonight, are you ready to stand before your king? And I wouldn't be your brother if I didn't ask that question. Are you ready to stand before the Lord tonight? And if you're not ready for that, let's do some prayer work after the Bible study tonight. Let's get together and be like, Sean, get over here, or somebody you trust, another brother or sister, and pray tonight to get that straight with the Lord. Run to the altar and grab hold of it and pray for that mercy. That's all we can do is hope to get the mercy of our King. Are you ready to talk to God tonight? Will your words do you any good and will you have time before the king of the universe to make all of your excuses? And Shimei is a great example. You won't be given that chance to make all of your excuses because God didn't say do it your way. He said do it my way. So I'm just going to lay that on you. I'm going to argue that you won't have a chance to make all your excuses. God's going to say did you follow me or didn't you? That's a tough thing to take as a believer. Are we keeping all the vows that we made to our king and are we running to the altar? Those are the two ways that we see people getting mercy. Or do you have all your excuses and reasons why you're not doing what God said to do? And you got every excuse in the world. But, 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 but I had to do this and I had to get this done and I had these people wanting this from me. That's why I never did your will. My prayer is that everybody in this room is following the Lord's will to the best of your ability that you're listening for God's voice and like Abraham, when he calls, you just say, I'm here, I'm at your service, what do you need? My prayer is that everyone in this room is showing the love and mercy that's in the law, that every person you deal with, you're dealing with them fairly, every person you deal with, you're giving love and grace to that person, and that you forgive trespass trespasses against you in the same way that you're hoping God forgives your trespasses. And that, for me, means you forgive everything. And that's how we live as believers. We live in that sense. And if you live that way, God's eternal promises are waiting for you. Hebrews chapter 6. They're waiting for you. And we can trust that our God's a good God in the same way that we're seeing the character of Solomon develop. Solomon's not God. But we got an image of a king that deals justly with the people of the world. And that means different ways for different people. Amen? We'll get to chapter 3 next week. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the conviction that it brings. We thank you for these conversations we can have around it. We thank you for the histories where we get to apply what we know from the law to the stories of Israel and the history of Israel. And Lord, we know you wove these stories into history so perfectly, um, so consistently, that we know your hand is not just in the writing of the Bible, but in the mastery of the situations and creating the right people from the womb to carry out these stories so when they're writing the truth, they're also writing your story. Lord, I'm in, I'm in awe of what's in your word. Lord, I'm also well aware of my own sin and the sins of my, the people in my family and the people I know. And Lord, we all come before you and we just put our lives at, your, at the altar. And Lord, we give it all to you. We have no excuses for our sin, only that we have and we've screwed up. We have, like all of the people in this story, we've defied our king in some way, shape, or form. And Lord, we've failed to tend to our houses and keep to our homes. Lord, we've failed to do our job. We've failed to serve the king in the way that we should. And Lord, we ask for your forgiveness, and we just put that before you. And Lord, we have a hope in salvation because you promised it to us. Through your own son, you sealed a covenant and a promise that we could run to the altar. We could run to the foot of the cross 
and know that there's a sacrifice that's already been made for our sins. So Lord, I just pray that each person in this room has done that business with you. And if they haven't, they, they don't leave here tonight without doing that. Um, so Lord, we love you. We thank you for the word. We thank you that we can open it and study the very words of God and we can apply them in our own lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.